Hey, y'all. You're listening to Diagnosing Sitcoms and Movies, the DSM podcast. We help make mental health more comfortable by using Black movies and shows we know and love and culture to remove stigma. So join our convo with your host, Courtney Copeland, licensed mental health counselor. And Dr. B, licensed professional counselor. This show is not a substitute for professional care, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have or suspect you may have a medical or psychological condition, you should consult your appropriate health care provider. You can also visit our website for resources on finding services near you. Courtney. Yes, ma'am. So, you know the song, is it like Life Cries? Girl, it's life. It's just the word life. <laughs> life cries. Life cries. Like, it's life, life. <laughs> not. I mean, maybe your church turned it into a, a gospel song, but it's definitely just life, life. Oh, oh. life, life, life. Uh, <laughs> but Casey and JoJo meant that thing. My hopes and dreams. <laughs> that was a good soundtrack. It was a little box. It was. It was. It was a little tearful at times. But so but, was the movie, low key. Low key. <laughs> Okay, so I have to have a moment. I don't like prison movies because they make me uncomfortable. Like, people are snapping booty holes. Oh, wow. Okay. That's what I automatically am like, oh, no, and this forceful slapping of the booty holes. And I just can't. Well, to that, all I can say is, you were scared, huh? Don't be scared. Mm -mm, Don't be scared. (laughs) Yes, I was like, I was like, um, what's his name from the Boondocks? That's how Tom. I Tom, yeah. Like, no Tom, anal rape. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like there was any anal rape in this. Um, it sounds like Biscuit mm-hmm. and Jang Lang was in a, a committed relationship. Yes, both willing parties. So this seems like your fear was averted in this film. Yeah. Uh, and listeners, if you haven't been able to guess yet, we are talking about the 1999 comedy drama Life, starring Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy. By the way, it's Life, Life, not Life Prize. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was anybody else's question. <laughs> just, uh, just in case no one wanted to admit it, I did it for the people, okay? <laughs> Looking out. Looking out. So... You know, Jingalang. Okay, so this whole time I thought his name was Jingalang. And then, like, in preparation for this episode, everywhere I see it, and when I had the captions on, it said Jingalang. And I was like, ew! Yes! Another layer! Yes! He's like, why do you think they call him Jingalang? You're gonna find out why I do. Asked him about himself, shook hands, you know, gave him a compliment about how soft and supple his hands was, (laughs) like a woman. (laughs) Mm. He Mm -mm. was trying to woo him. (laughs) There was no, yeah, no forceful anything happening in this film. Uh, He's trying to make a love story. I suppose. suppose. But did you see how Biscuit dropped that water and clutched the pearls when? Take my man. Oh, uh, no. uh, uh, <laughs> nah, he moved on. <laughs> but 
it, the stuff that Bernie Mac was just like his little stuff he was throwing in was hilarious because when uh, he was looking at Claude and Biscuit was like eyes full with Mister, he was, ain't nobody doing nothing. <laughs> ain't nobody doing nothing. <laughs> he was hilarious in this. Like it was, it was subtle, but it was still very much Bernie Mac. Like <laughs> out of baby. <laughs> oh, that is like. I think you think about this movie, that's the first line that people say. Out of Peppy. Out of father that there, baby. <laughs> I love that. I, that was probably one of the best scenes for me because it was like, that's that's when it, it changed from it being like, this is a prison to this is like their brotherhood. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they're they're here. They, they can't get out. They, you know, this is who they have. So they made the best of it with what they had. And so even when one of them clearly fucked up, <laughs> they're all like, okay, we all are in this. They can't get us all at the same time. So, yeah, that was that was a nice thing to see that, to see how they, they bonded. And I think that it was the paternal energy and instincts of the camp because Can't Get Right was younger because yeah. Can't Right Can't Get Right did have some form, some level of disability. Everybody kind of took to him in that way and became care providers and caregivers for him. And so they was out of baby. Out of baby. And everybody laughed. Everybody. <laughs> But Even uh, Sergeant Dillard started laughing. <laughs> Damn fool! Everybody know that ain't your baby. <laughs> oh, and then of course, like I feel like Ray had to, in his mind, that that whole concept of go after the biggest person in the room. Let him know <laughs> you ain't no fuck. Like the way he went off about that damn biscuit, it wasn't even his biscuit. I mean, his cornbread. Cornbread, yeah. It wasn't even his cornbread, and he talked about you. No, no, you ain't gonna give him your cornbread. That's your <laughs> cornbread. Fuck him. He, hey, hey, he gonna eat his cornbread. Fuck you. <laughs> he said, "How about I eat your cornbread? You thinking about my cornbread? You better take the taste out your mouth." No, fuck him, cause I'm from New York City. And that goes for any other you fucking farmers want to try some shit. <laughs> fuck around with me, it's gonna be some consequences and repercussions. You gonna eat your cornbread? Mm-mm. Oh, Trevor. Mm, oh, motherfucker, fun. you can't have my cornbread. That's for damn sure. Because if you try to take my cornbread, part two of my killing spree gonna begin up in here on your ass right now. If you think about my cornbread, they get the taste out your mouth. That's for damn sure. Now, fuck him. Fuck that. Because I'm from New York City, goddammit. Nobody take no cornbread from me. And that go for you and any other you motherfucking farmers want to try some shit. You fuck around with me, it's going to be consequences and repercussions. <laughs> Not consequences and repercussions is some shit that I say <laughs> in real life. <laughs> in real life, consequences and repercussions. Then you tell people you're from New York too? I don't. I don't say that. I'm from the opposite side of the state, so I don't. It don't have the same. I'm from Buffalo, New York. It don't. It real. It don't. It don't do really. That. Okay. I mean, I I've never really thrown it in there because I've been away for so long. So people be like, "Yeah, we don't hear it." <laughs> like I have to. I have to have the accent in order for people to believe me. I don't know. Like, are you though? Are you? <laughs> are you? Yes. God damn it. <laughs> That's another. I think another uh, popular line from this movie is, "You gonna eat mm-hmm. your cornbread?" Yeah, for sure. I've, I've said that a few times at a Thanksgiving. Yeah. 
I think, I think we both. <laughs> you choke on red. Take it too damn long. Shit, eat yeah. it. Okay, and so a quote that is going to lead me into my conspiracy theory, and I want you to follow with me. I usually save these for the end of the episode, but let's start off with it today. Let's so, do it. After the, uh, you won't eat your cornbread, when mm-hmm. <laughs> Goldmouth is wh- whooping Ray's ass, he said, I know a bitch named Della hit harder than you. So in my mind, that took mm-hmm. me straight back to Harlem Nights because Della Reese is the one who was whooping Quick's ass <laughs> and the... the Alley in Harlem Nights when he shot her in the peaky toe. So, like how you say, we sometimes we, we could cross universes. So, in my mind, these universes actually cross. And Rayford Gibson is Quick's half brother. They have the same father, different mothers. So, Ray's father died, and he <laughs> went with his, you know, just his mama, but uh-huh. and he was also Quick's daddy. Quick uh-huh. party died, and then his mama died. So no, they both just dead. Mm-hmm. Brothers, but they was only half brothers, so they didn't know it. And then Quick went on to have everything he had with Sugar Ray's, and Ray just had Ray's mm-hmm. boom boom room. Oh damn! The upper room, the upper room, when Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Okay. That always makes me laugh for a, such it's such a dark reason. It's such <laughs> so, a dark reason. But no, my cousin started singing that. What? At the graveyard of my great grandmother's <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> so we don't all handle death very well collectively as a family. We just don't. It's so uh-huh. he, for him, he needed humor to get him through. It's so <laughs> oh, he started singing the uh singing up a room. It did that whole little montage, that whole scene he performed before us right there at the graveyard. So there are literally pictures of the whole family standing in the graveyard. <laughs> Everybody else has like a solemn look on their face because we're burying, we're literally putting her in the dirt. And mm-hmm. I am smiling from ear to ear because this man is behind me singing the upper room. <laughs> I look crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh, Courtney. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Only you are smiling? Oh. <laughs> Oh, like ear to ear, like you can see top and bottom row of teeth, like how hard because I was about to bust out laughing. And I bet you somebody looking at this picture like the fuck she smiling for. <laughs> That's what it that that is the appropriate response. If you see the picture, if I could find it, I'll share it with you. But I just want all of our listeners to know it's my cousin Clifford's fault. I added him. I said it. It was him. It was his fault. It wasn't me. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> That's to be better. I'm gonna just bust up in the motherfucker and go there. Boom. Let him shoot me. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so uh, back to your theory um, mm-hmm. of them being mm-hmm. half brothers. Okay. I could, I could definitely see that because he he has some of the same mannerisms as he did, like within. Um, within Harlem Nights, like just his quick talking, you know, 
I'm going to talk my way out of this and shit talking. But I also feel like that's just who Eddie Murphy is in general. <laughs> that's what New York City gave him. That's but what New the, York City the, gave him. The timing, if you look at the years, it adds up. It if does. you think about the Boom Boom Room in comparison to Sugar Ray's, the, the similarities there, it mm-hmm. was just something, you know, inside them because they daddy was a gambling man, as we learned. So it might be how he got to watch. We don't know. <laughs> Crazy. I like that, though. You know, and I, that makes sense. It makes sense. I like it. I like that theory. Let's let that stick. Okay. So, yeah. So even if it's not true, that's just what we're going to say. Like I feel like this is the this is the opposite of what happens in Harlem Night. Like life is what really happened. Harlem Nights is what we wish would happen. Life is what happens when you get uh, adopted out of poverty. Mm. I mean, the car Harlem Nights is what happens when you get adopted out of poverty, and life is what happens when you're forced to stay in it. Ooh. Oh, that's so dark. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> But everything in this movie does. There's so many like larger, huge, deep concepts. Like we have wrong, wrongful imprisonment, prison yes. parchment farms, uh, mm-hmm. convict mm-hmm. leasing systems, mm-hmm. racism, murder, suicide, segregation, disability, homophobia. But as Black people do, we were still able to find the funny in all of these and make a hilarious movie because this movie is so funny <laughs> yeah. especially when when Ray I mean um when Carl went and ate that hot pie burnt the shit out of his mouth <laughs> and they had to stand on them damn bottles oh gee damn one of my toes in the bottle damn it Ray yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. They were some miserable old men. I couldn't believe they didn't talk for that long. He was so angry. I and mean, then- but if I got you a life sentence in prison, I think mm. you would be mad at me too. Yeah. Yeah, I would. But- Especially like if we had just met that night. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I- and see, that's why it was hard for me to diagnosed Claude because it was just kind of like yeah it's really a really messed up situation to be in like no one wants to to have to serve a life sentence after meeting someone within less than 24 hours and this is your technically getting mugged by someone and he's just so bad so he saved you from being drowned but you know right (laughs) yeah so I did not diagnose Claude neither so if you want to we could jump right into these diagnoses girl I'm ready Okay, so since we didn't diagnose Claude, let's talk about him and just general thoughts, what you were thinking about in relation to Claude. Well, you know, I I did think like his relationship, like when you when you get a little peek into his relationship um, and how he operated, it did seem like he was very selfish. But it was like he was he was young, you know, and trying to um, still kind of make a name for himself so he got this job he's trying to you know I think he was feeling himself he was he was just trying to learn about who he was at this stage and um having a child or getting married and having a child just wasn't quite where he was at the time but does that really make him selfish I don't know 
definitely not to a level where we needed to diagnose him with anything. But I think that for me, it presented as Claude basically like struggling what his presentation of like what uh, meant to be a good man and what masculinity was. And Mm -hmm. because I felt like Claude felt like, yeah, like I'm a catch, you know, like I got this and stuff going on, but low key, like you not because clearly you broke right now and Mm -hmm. you in debt. And the loan sharks just bust you down for your last 20. Mm -hmm. And that's like, you didn't even have sock money, bruh, to pay for the meal, like nothing. And so all of that on top of you are, you have bank teller. And I think that's why he was really offended when Ray was like, I never heard no man fixing to be a bank teller. Like that's not like women's work to me. It sounded like Claude was trying to establish like himself as what a good man is. I'm, you know. I'm that, I'm embodying that. I got morals, ideas and stuff like that, but not being able to physically make that happen. And then constantly being knocked back down, like life constantly taking jabs at him and picking at what he felt like it meant to be a man. And so he was constantly having to reevaluate what that was and what that looked like for him and how he could be a good dude while having this going on. Well, now I'm in prison. So how can I be a good person and be prison? Like, this is how we are gonna have to do it. And then... Um, I think his frustration is what got him to the point where he didn't want to try to escape anymore. He didn't want to talk to Ray no more because every time that he reevaluated on what it was to be a good dude, life would hit life <laughs> would hit him and it would shake him and rattle what that picture, the picture was because he couldn't fit into that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you see that, especially when he's trying to get can't get right um, and trying to leave with him because of, uh, of baseball and really like, well, he, he can't be without us, you know, and really trying to work his way into being, uh, to getting out. He, like he found, he tried every way, but like you said, I feel like after a certain point, he just was over it. But on the other hand, Ray was persistent (laughs) (laughs) in all 17,000 of his attempts. And then and what we're really cracking up was like Ray, Ray just he never really had a full plan, especially when yeah. he said, I got a map. Let me see the map. It's something that so and so drew. <laughs> and it's like, so this isn't a real map. <laughs> so and so didn't he drew it. He just said, I drew it because right. I knew you weren't I coming. If I didn't have that. <laughs> what the hell? I'd have hit him with the map. <laughs> I hope they bite your ass off, them damn hounds. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think so. Ray's consistency is what leveled Claude off. And so once Claude yeah. got to the point where he was able to enjoy his friendship again with Ray, it sparked something back in him to where he is the one who came up with the plan that eventually got them their freedom. Mm-hmm. Right. Like a whole three decades later. They was like, in their 90s, but they got it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Don't give yeah. up hope. Keep hope alive. <laughs> hope alive. You know, and it's like, what, what, what's the moral of this story here? Because I don't feel bad about seeing this movie. But again, a, a movie that could have been something completely different if it wasn't for racist people. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that that's the part that sucks. Like, damn. It's like. Did you uh, diagnose Rayford? I did. I diagnosed him with narcissistic uh, personality <gasps> disorder. Wow. 
Explain. <laughs> you don't like it? Oh, I was no, okay. I get it. It's just, huh. <laughs> I don't know. Right for it. Okay, hold on. Right Okay, so for narcissistic, person, narcissistic personality disorder, I can't talk today. Some of the criteria, well, let me start with the description. It's a pervasive pattern of grandiosity and fantasy or behavior, need for admiration or, and lack of empathy beginning by early adulthood um, and present in a variety of contexts. Um, so one thing that stood out to me was his grandiose sense of self-importance especially when it came to uh, can't get right and the managing him is preoccupied, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, and or ideal love. So that goes to the boom, room room or Ray's boom, boom, room <laughs> <laughs> believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special high status people and I think that's what kind of got him into trouble with owning the owing the loan sharks money and trying to be something that he's not I wouldn't say he requires excessive uh, admiration but he does have a um a sense of entitlement especially when it came down to like how Claude should have reacted to him or have been interacting with him throughout the whole entire thing so <laughs> that's it. What are your thoughts? And so I did not diagnose him, you know, personality or different things like that because I'm trying to, I guess, take into context the the circumstances, not just his specific circumstances, but also the times that they were living in. And so technically, like we're looking at um, Great Depression era and limited opportunities, him trying to as a black person in America, just trying to be the person that he know that he was born to be, as opposed to being the person that society is trying to tell you that you are. Um, and so, like we said, how even with our theory that him and Quick are brothers is that he knows that he has that inside of him, but life continues to happen. And so that he doesn't have those same opportunities. I feel like, but he still feels that he's that person on the inside. He is someone who is, he's business minded. He wants to do different things. What I did diagnose him with though, is um, mild gambling disorder. In, currently in sustained remission because he'd been in prison for forever. But <laughs> I felt like his gambling was led to the reason why they were even in the situation in the first place. He was actually stealing from Claude so that he could, or he tried to steal. Claude ain't had no more money left, but he tried to steal from Claude so that he could continue to gamble. He was already in debt to uh, Rick James, who played Spank. And that's why the doorman initially didn't want to even let him in. He was like, no, Spank is pissed at you. You can't come in. Why don't you go somewhere where they let you in the front door? And he was like, come on. You remember the time I got your girl? <laughs> Leather shoes. Bitch was wearing pigskin when I met her. <laughs> but like him continuously, continuously gambling that's how he ended up losing the watch like gambling with the money that was supposed to be their money for them to go back home with the criteria for gambling uh disorder is that i felt like that he met was 
the persistent and recurrent problematic gambling behavior leading to clinically significant impairment or distress indicated by being preoccupied with gambling. So having persistent thoughts of reliving past gambling experiences, handicapping or planning the next venture, thinking of ways to get money in which to gamble. And so like how we saw with him still in and I mean, Ray's boom, boom, boom was a way for him to lead a gambling organization. So there's also that. After losing money gambling, often returning another day to get even. So him coming back, even knowing that he knowing that he um owed spanky money, still coming there to continue to gamble. And when he was leaving the, <laughs> the country place, <laughs> he said that waitress got me. He said, What waitress? He said, Whatever. When I come back, the bitch I choked. That's the one I'm talking about. <laughs> so planning on coming back. And then also uh, relying on others to provide money to relieve the desperate financial situations caused by the gambling. And so they are on a completely different mission, bootlegging and running the bulls back, which is already an illegal activity that they're doing. So they're already engaged in a risky behavior. You're going to add the additional risk of seeing if there's gambling down there and wanting to go gamble with the money that is supposed to get us home. Like it just, it was, it was a lot for me, but I still diagnosed him with mouth because he only met four of the criteria. I think that there are people like they referenced poker face who was in prison, who might have a more uh, severe <laughs> diagnosis of gambling disorder, but gambling is what I diagnosed Ray with. Um, I think if I was to work with him as a client, we would, yes, yes, do some CBT, but also see what what it is, what distress that he is trying to alleviate with the gambling behavior. Like, what is it that's distressing you that you seek the comfort um, from gambling from so that we can try to get at, yes, the behavior and the behavior change, but as well as the root of whatever the issue is, which I'm assuming is probably losing his daddy because how how hard he clung on to the watch. Okay. Okay. Oh, the next person that I diagnosed was <laughs> Hoppin' Bob. <laughs> Who? <laughs> What's the, <laughs> the uh little the over the black overseer dude? Oh, <laughs> he was so annoying. Boss but... ain't working. <laughs> Him. God, he, he's the weasel of everybody. Shut your mouth and your fat ass. <laughs> so. <laughs> I diagnosed him with dependent personality disorder because of the fact that he did everything and repeated everything uh, said by Sergeant Dillard and whatever he said basically went. Uh, the criteria that I felt that happened by kind of fit was the difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice or reassurance from others, which would be Sergeant Dillard. His need for uh, Sergeant Dillard to assume responsibility for most major areas of his life, difficulty expressing disagreement because of fear of loss of support or approval, which is, you know, also circumstantial. He can't go against Sergeant Dillard because then he would lose his position, which was a trash position to have in the first place, but I could see why he would not want to lose it. No, I can't see it because I would never be that person, but yeah, there's a reason, I guess. (laughs) having difficulty initiating projects or doing things on their own because of a lack of self-confidence and judgment or abilities rather than a lack of motivation or energy. He definitely was motivated and had the energy to do anything and even be with the regular population of prisoners that were there. But instead, because he was following up under Sergeant Diller, he just basically did what he needed to do there. And then goes to excessive lengths to obtain nurturance and support from others to the point of volunteering to do things that are unpleasant. 
maintaining being a trustee in itself had to be an, an unpleasant experience for him like even if it wasn't mentally like emotionally and spiritually that has to do something to you to be an uncle tom so <laughs> the fact that you're volunteering to do that i felt like played into what could potentially be the diagnosis of dependent personality disorder i would like to see if on the outside that uh those same concepts exhibited outside of prison but just based off of what we was given that's what i went with okay so with happen bob i noticed like after watching it again that there were other men in the same uniform as him. Mm-hmm. And like, even when he passes on, you see like there's other men in the, in the uniform. The trustees is what they the were called. Okay. <laughs> and um, I think that, I think it's something that happens. Like if they're like, maybe they're awarded that based off of good behavior or just, you know, Uncle Tomness. Right, being able to sort of <laughs> snitch and be like, "Oh, that happened," and they're like, "Oh, we can rat trust behavior." You. <laughs> yeah. We can trust you. You, you're gonna be our trustee, and tell us you're one, one of the good like, ones, right? You know that type of thing. But I think it was also his part of survival too, because had he mm-hmm. not become a trustee, that he wouldn't have been able to live in that environment or be able to thrive in that environment. So I think he did what he, he knew to do and knew. Who knows? We Hop and Bob could have been some some type of servant or trustee type of thing on the on the outside, you know. And and that's just like who he what he knows. And and so going into that environment, it was like, okay, well, I need to get on the good side of the white folk, and you know, be up here according to the black folk. So, I know. <laughs> I know. But I, I, I didn't give him a, a diagnosis. I shit. I didn't even know his damn name. I just knew him as the annoying black man. <laughs> the white man said. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> okay, so one person who I feel like definitely needs further assessment. I have no idea what was going on with Jang Lang. I don't I don't know. I I don't I don't know. I, I don't know either. <laughs> that was a phone. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so I I I knew that we couldn't have this movie and not talk about Jangaling or Jangaling. Jangaling, Jangaling. I guess you say it real fast. Don't you say, say it. Jangaling, Jangaling. Okay, Um I I put him on the autism spectrum disorder. I would put him on it. I, I diagnosed him with autism spectrum disorder. Sure did. Mm-hmm. You're going real heavy. Okay. Can I hear why? Wow. <laughs> but I thought this was... <laughs> it is. I need further assessment and able to, di- to be able to diagnose uh, Jangalang because I don't know... He seemed like a gentleman, uh, first and foremost. He That's definitely true. was performative and anyone who who he uh, saw that caught his eye because he was even, you know, doing his little dance but when the girls came, when Biscuit was um, contemplating his suicide, um, oh. which we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second as well. Um, mm-hmm. But like it, he was, he he knew how to interact with people uh, appropriately. So that really wasn't the, the social awkwardness. The social awkwardness in, in that way, I did not see. He responded when it was. I, it wasn't the Santa, Santa Claus. Claus. It was a man in a suit. suit. Ringing the bell. So. He had presents. Jing Lang said, I ain't getting nothing. 
like he knew what was going on and was aware at each at each point of time and was able to provide his feedback. It didn't seem like he was really fixated on any one which thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead, do your thing. List the criteria. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so criteria <laughs> <laughs> is um, persistent defects in social communication and social interactions across multiple contexts, as manifested by the following. Um, so uh, deficits in social emotional reciprocity ranging from, for example, from abnormal social approach and failure, to, failure of normal back and forth conversation to reduced sharing of interests, emotions or affect, failure to initiate or respond to social interaction, deficiency in nonverbal communicative behaviors and or deficits in developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. Now that part, I don't feel like he had as far as, oh, and then for criteria B, restrictive, repetitive patterns or behaviors, interests or activities. So he had his moments where he would move or his, his jingling, jingling. So stereotype or repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech, simple motor stereotypes, lining up toys or flipping objects. Instances on sameness and flexibility and um, adherence to routines. And so I think being in this environment helped him develop better skills at communicating because it was so routine and ritualized for him. But I think that also aided in his um, in his behaviors. Highly restricted, fixated interests that are abnormal um, in intensity or focus. So for me, I think it was his intense focus on jangling. <laughs> so him saying um, his name is what made you diagnose him as autistic <laughs> or on the know, autism spectrum uh-huh. no, it was his it was his behaviors his mannerisms and then him saying his name several times and i would put him on a you know without intellectual impairment and all that other stuff but yeah i would i would i would definitely suspect him being on this on the autism spectrum disorder and I would do the appropriate testing needed to give him the appropriate diagnosis. But based off of the interactions he's had, that's my, that would be my diagnosis. Well, with that being said, uh, Biscuit and his uh, a suicide um, hurt deep. it's really sad I'm laughing because of the awkwardness that I feel because it's comedy but that was really really sad it was sad especially like just knowing that um, well basically men in the United States are more likely to uh, take their own life at a rate of four times that uh, than of women and suicide being the seventh leading cause for men in the United States and LGBTQ just more general, men that who have sex with other men are at an even greater risk for suicide attempts. Um, unfortunately, especially in our country, that is the case uh, for the for youth, those under the age of 25. And so I'm not exactly sure how old Biscuit was supposed to be, but it is like a serious issue. And just the, the way that Miguel A. Yunez played the hell out of that role because he went on to do Juana Man after that based off of him singing in the boom, boom room. But also like when he was saying like, I can't go home to my mama like this. Like, and Ray was like, well, she's just going to be happy to see you. He was like, Mm-mm, not like this. And the harsh realities that it were for that time of 
the limited acceptance of people who were gay, bisexual, trans, whatever it was um, that they, however they presented or, you know, were experiencing or identified, but that to the point where he saw no other option that he would rather be dead than be free because he knew that that would be going home and what that would mean for him and his family. Yeah. And for me, it was, it was definitely a different, a different understanding watching it now versus of course, when I was younger, now that I'm older, I'm able to see, okay, exactly why he, he did it. And it was the fear of not being accepted once he got out and it, and, he was able, just like we, we talked about earlier, as far as that brotherhood, he was able to be himself in this mm-hmm. environment and, you know, having to learn how to be himself or not being able to be himself was really scary. And I can only imagine like not being able to to be your authentic self when you're actually free, when you're supposed mm-hmm. to be free. And so being imprisoned in this false identity is like, oh, well, I might as well stay here or just, you know, end it here. And with that, I gave him, I diagnosed him with separation anxiety disorder because he was anxious about returning and separating from, anticipating separating from uh, being, like being attached to that environment. Like he was attached to it. Like it, it became his norm and even... And in some ways, I felt like he might have even been attached to Jingle because like that was that was probably the first relationship that was real for him. And to know that he had to be separated from him. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That nigga said, ain't nobody worried about him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like, anybody. He was, he was this this is the problem. Read this letter. This is the issue. I got right. real shit going on. Fuck Jingle right now. <laughs> right. So the criteria for a separation anxiety disorder is reoccurring excessive distress when anticipating or experiencing separation from home or from major attachment figures. So that being uh, the prison and the life that he was able to have there. Um, persistent and excessive worry about losing major cha- attachment figures and or about possible harm to them, such as illness, injury, disaster, or death. So he was really he was concerned about how he was going to be treated when he when he actually left and was detached from, from that environment. And for him, it was definitely the possibility, especially at that time, being injured or dying. And then persistent or excessive worry about experiencing um, an outward, an untoward event. Okay. So getting lost, being kidnapped or having an accident, becoming ill that causes separation from major attachment figures. Can adults be diagnosed with separation anxiety? You know, I didn't look into that very much. Oh, actually, the fear, um, anxiety, or avoidance and persistent lasting at least four to six, four weeks in children and adolescents and typically six or more months in adults. So yes, they can. Gotcha. So it has to be typically six or more months. So we, I'm not entirely sure. We're not entirely sure how long he's been sitting with that letter to know that he's been being released. But yeah, either that or I would diagnose them with like adjustment disorder, just pretty much getting used to the idea that he's going to be in a new environment and having to adjust to it. I think I will probably go more so with the adjustment, with the receiving the letter and the inability to cope with that uh, incoming and uh, change that he's expecting to happen. Mm -hmm. And then 
getting to the point where he completely loses his ability to cope with it by running past the gun line and getting shot by Nipsey from Martin. Mm-hmm. Cause it was Nipsey that shot him. Oh, okay. damn Nipsey. <laughs> okay, so can't get right. So the fact that they called this man can't get right speaks to the the terribleness that America had towards disabilities of the time. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the only thing, like, yes, um, can't get right was nonverbal, but. Was that his only issue going on? Like, I, we don't really, he doesn't present necessarily as having like intellectual disability. There could potentially be some level of autism spectrum, maybe, maybe not. Or it just might be mutism. Like, we really don't know because we don't get nothing more about his disability besides he can't get right because it was the times of just blacking people away with disabilities and you know use some of that dumb dumb strength like when he said it I was like no Ray no don't call it dumb dumb strength (laughs) well for me I diagnosed can't get right with uh, social pragmatic communication disorder so that's the persistent difficulty and the social use of verbal and nonverbal communication um, as manifested by the following so deficits in communication for social purposes, such as reading and sharing information, impairment and ability to change communication to match context or needs of the listener, such as speaking differently, but he didn't speak at all. Hmm. Uh, difficulties hmm. following rules for conversation, storytelling, such as turns and, ta- and turns in convers- taking turns in conversation. But I mean, that, that's the one as far as like a neural um, developmental disorder there is select mutism but I don't feel like it was selective I think he was just mute there's also the potential that he could have experienced the trauma and then stopped speaking afterwards like we don't know because no one saw fit to give (laughs) can't get right a background story because all we know is that he just can't get right boy don't even got a real name (laughs) the white dude came and was like oh you talking about can't get right he said that's the kid's name (laughs) You issue a part if it can't get right. Like, is that what it said on the the legal paperwork? (laughs) In his name, can't get right. (laughs) Excuse me, Mr. Right. (laughs) Right. His mom birthed him and was like, can't get that shit right. I'm going to put that shit down. That's a nice name. Can't get right. And that was it. Like, is this his birth birth name? It seems like it's his birth name, which is sad. I don't know. It might have just been what they started calling him on the bus ride to prison. But we don't know because there's no backstory. (laughs) But I just love Bokeem in every role that he has ever played in all of his acting career. He is. Oh, that's his name? I thought of him as the uh, other Dave Chappelle. Wow. Mm. Okay. That man's name is Bokeem. Okay. (laughs) I thought he was the the stand-in for Dave Chappelle. The stand-in? stuntman or something yeah so there's that um <laughs> moving on moving right along <laughs> <laughs> sheriff pike diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder that evil racist asshole whole thing whole movie would have been different if it wasn't for sheriff pike being such a lame <laughs> all throughout the movie all throughout the movie yeah, I didn't diagnose him. Um, he just, I was, I just 
would put him in the category of a racist white man doing his job, being a racist white man. Mm -hmm. We have labeled racism as a spiritual diagnosis that um, is, uh, I guess, within the evil cluster. Um, So there, there is that. Uh, I think that he was also functioning in a position that also gave him power. I also think that he had a mental diagnosis. I'm not going to excuse any level of it. We're going to say mental and and industrial complex. We're going to say spiritual, just all of the ways that he could be fucked. He was. Mm -hmm. And so let me outline how mentally he was messed up. Uh (laughs) Antisocial personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. Now, more normally, this would be we have evidence of this occurring since the age of 15. We do not uh, specifically have that type of historical data from from him, but we do have years of it because we have him as young Sheriff Pike and then old Sheriff Pike and being a dickhead all along. Um, And so for him, he exhibits failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. He was the sheriff and was doing illegal stuff and had not he been the sheriff he might have been arrested his dog on stuff because he was just doing all types of stuff on top of that there is also the deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying lying for years on these people you know that you killed that man winston and you just let these people go to prison and conning others for personal profit or pleasure there is also impulsivity or failure to plan ahead he killed that man with no plan got his face all cut up and just put bandage on and there was no you just walking around with a whole scar for the rest of your life. How do you explain that to people? You don't because you didn't know that was going to happen. All right. Anyway, um, irritability and aggressiveness, um, as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults, all of the a lot of the violence that we actually see that he is involved in. This is initiation as well as his general irritability with him just complaining about knowing about the back uh or the lady's gallbladder that was sitting next to him like the back of his damn hand maybe you should have just stopped listening to that lady and being on her mouth i mean either way i'm just bad at him so she could have been annoying who knows but either way um (laughs) reckless disregard for the safety of self or others as well as the lack of remorse is indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, mistreated or stolen from another. Where when the uh, Dexter Wilkins was like, is this true? He basically was just like, it don't matter. We got 40 years of free labor out of them. Like vibes and you, you saying they saying that you stole it from them. And mm-hmm. so he was met with a well-deserved fate of being shot by Dexter Wilkins. That's all I have to say about whack-ass Sheriff Pike. <laughs> and there you have it, friends. But Dexter Wilkins, I did feel like, was at his end of life. Eric Erickson's stage of integrity versus despair. Basically, where people are kind of looking back, being reflective over their life and older, especially older adults looking back to, um, well, it's in older adults, 65 and up whether they feel a sense of fulfillment at their life and whether they have feelings of success and wisdom or failure or regrets and that could potentially lead to despair. And I felt like he was being very reflective. And I think that his relationship that he had built with Claude caused him to be even more reflective. Like when uh, he said, Claude, what do you think about this, this place? And gave him the pamphlet pamphlet and Claude was like oh this is real nice it's a whole lot better than the infirmary that I'm going to end up in. And then um, that caused 
him to kind of look at stuff and say, Claude, I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, mean to, you know, offend you. That was rude of me. And um, saying 40 years is a long time, even for murder. And Claude is like, well, it's even longer when you didn't do it. And again, him starting to think about, like, I actually built a relationship with this man. I have respect for him. I care about his opinion. I have him in my house. He's the only person that's really taking care of me. And then he's telling me that his life was stolen from him. And I think that's what led him to be comfortable with shooting the sheriff and then lying to the people about it because, you know, he go to church with the other police officer. So he felt like it would be OK. But then I think that him engaging in that act, I felt like he was having a place where he was at that despair. He was having regrets. He was being reflective. But him shooting the sheriff was like kind of his, OK, I made up for it. And so that's why he died on the toilet. <laughs> Maybe. He had to get to his place of integrity and then he could let go. <laughs> Damn, that sucks. Um, and that's that's their con- like the, the bad luck that they seem to have in this movie. <laughs> Just when they almost got the paper signed, he dies on the toilet. Uh-huh. <laughs> As we learn from our, uh, our, our griot, so to speak, of Willie Long, who is telling the story of Ray and Claude and how long that they've been there. But like they said, they they never gave up hope. And I think that was because Ray had the experience of his dad giving up. He said, my daddy dad died in a place like this. He gave up and he hung himself. And that was Ray's kind of motivation for him to be as consistent as he was, be as persistent as he was, like you said earlier, and continue to just, no, we going to get up out of here. Like Until he got to the place where he was like, we up next. We on deck. <laughs> You like baseball? Yes, we owned it. <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bust up in that motherfucker. Go to her room. Let him shoot me. They'll take me out singing that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I did want to say how much I hated um, the fact that, yes, it is more so a story centering prison. But like the women in the film, none, nobody really had any layers, any depth. It was all about who they were in a relationship to men. And just highlight how uh, Lisa, what's her name? Lisa Nicole. Yeah, Lisa Nicole Carson was like the floozy in every movie of the 90s. Like she would just, every time she was in a movie. <laughs> I know, poor soul. I miss Claude. That's my name. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she you got fine. any money, Claude? She's fine, though. She's fine. Facts, facts. That's why she was able to secure those roles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, I can see that as far as like, you know, it not the women. It wasn't very... Uh, woman centered or focused. It was very much centered on the men's experience and their story. Heavy on the masculinity and and what that means and how people identified with it uh, was a lot of the central themes <laughs> and what guided a lot of the friction too. Last person I wanted to diagnose was Sergeant Dillard. And I diagnosed him with intermittent explosive disorder. Because this nigga was always yelling. What is you yelling for? (laughs) 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 
the criteria for that recurrent behavioral outbursts representing a failure to control aggressive impulses as manifested for him uh, verbal aggression <laughs> which would be represented as either temper tantrums tirades verbal arguments <laughs> towards other individuals occurring twice weekly on average for a period of at least three months he clearly was doing much more than that um, the magnitude of aggressiveness expressed during the recurrent outbursts is grossly out of proportion for the provocation or to any precipitating psychosocial stressor. The only thing that did make me question this diagnosis, though, was that the recurrent aggressive outbursts are, well, one, are not premeditated, which a lot of his weren't, but also um, are not committed to achieve some tangible objective such as money, power, or intimidation, where I felt like he was trying to flex his power, trying to flex his intimidation. I don't feel like it was used necessarily to gain either power or intimidation because he inherently already had that because of the situation that they were in. I think he was just abusing that power in that level of intimidation by constantly berating them and yelling and then having old hop and bob corny ass echo every the fuck thing that he said. <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can see the the latter like, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's <laughs> I would say it's a learned behavior more so than anything that this is how you talk to these mm. types of individuals, you know, and then on top of them, not only being criminals in their mind or, you know, in their eyes, but also black. And so yes. then that gives you reason or, um, you know, a rationale, if you will, for that type of, of language and, and bereavement because you know it, this is what they're used to or this is and, this is how you talk to them yeah yeah you feel like these people are lesser and there is lots of research and a long history i don't feel like there even needs to be research there's just the long history and lived experience of people in those type of positions of power being coming becoming institutionalized themselves mm -hmm. and what that abuse of power looks like there are uh the stanford experiments and all of that where it don't don't take long you lose your damn mind in that position just because of the design of what prison is and how gross it is. Yeah. Or even but. just under, I think sometimes it just takes a little bit of empathy and a lot of people who go into that and sue that, you know, profession typically don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the idea that people who have committed a crime are seen as less than is is part of the problem even still now that's my two cents facts just want to know uh where did you get the recipe for negro pies <laughs> <laughs> why would this lady have negro pie where would she get the recipe for that <laughs> i suppose they didn't have google back in them times that was so funny to me <laughs> How much would it cost for me to turn one of these white pies into nigga pies? How about I turn you into nigga pie? <laughs> well, then, let me go you ahead. About and 33 miles. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he really just wanted that damn pie. Always wanted a damn pie. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> the makeup in this movie was awesome with them getting old, like it was yes. way before his time. And yeah, they won an award for it, right? For best makeup. I could see why. Mm -hmm. When he is sitting on the bed looking, <laughs> looking at Claude. <laughs> Go to sleep, nigga. And I hope it's the long one. <laughs> to look like a mean old man. 
Why you gotta say nasty shit, Ray? Because I'm a nasty motherfucker. <laughs> don't touch the car. I don't piss on it. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's the only type of stuff that Ray would say. So, yeah. Pretty dope. It, it was really good makeup. They did an awesome job. But I'm not surprised because of, you know, Eddie Murphy and doing, <laughs> you know, The Nutty Professor. You, you can't you can't do a story like this and not have amazing makeup like that. So it was the same makeup artist. He actually has been working with that person through a lot of the movies where he does play multiple characters. This was the only film where they worked together and Eddie played one <laughs> character throughout the actual the entire film. Rather, <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I didn't I didn't even realize that. I mean, that makes sense now because it was so it was so good. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if we learn nothing else from this movie, definitely is to don't manifest to what it is that you want. Don't go to jail. Try okay. to avoid that as much as possible because the prison industrial complex system is alive and thriving and you could potentially end up with a wrongful imprisonment and, and we add, write to us because, you know, we'll contact the, the justice uh, until free all the other programs that they got for you. Get your shout out on the show. Do what we can do. But um, <laughs> definitely um, continue to manifest your thoughts and your dreams. Ray had boom, boom, room. And that's what kept him going, kept him motivated to see each day. Said it exists in my mind. I swear, I got to start first. Start your brain first. As a man thinketh, so shall he get or some shit. You know, you read the Bible. And then also <laughs> keep hope alive. Them keeping hope alive and never giving up is why they one did not commit suicide in prison because it's a harsh place and it'll do that to your brain but also um is what got them their freedom in the end and they got back to harlem and got an apartment and lived happily ever after so they really are the only ones with a prognosis because <laughs> everybody else died right there you have it friends that's life <laughs> boom so if you would like to support the show to help us get more content out to you all, you can visit our website and follow the support the show link to become a Patreon member or donate on our cash app. Now we're happy to get the kind of money that jingles, but we'd rather the kind that folds. And if you can't do that, you can always go and buy us some merch. <laughs> As always, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the DSM podcast, and you can subscribe to our show wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a comment because we are counselors and actually care about what you have to say. Until next time, y'all. Peace. Okay, bye, you cinephile. <laughs>